Let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, and see if what I have to say is from the Scriptures. One of the results of having the indwelling Spirit is that we will suffer. You can count on sufferings of all kinds, whether because of bearing the reproach with Christ outside the camp or because of the natural decay that comes as a result of the curse. For believers, suffering is both guaranteed and necessary. But we also saw last time that suffering is worthwhile because it comes from the hand of the loving Father and it's used to highlight the glorious nature of His mercy. But how can we be sure that God's using our suffering for good? How can we be sure that God is using the suffering that we experience for His glory? How do we maintain patience and resolve despite the indwelling sin that we have and the ongoing suffering that, it, that we experience? And the, the way that we can maintain patience and resolve during this time is the, the answer is found in verses 26 through 30, which will be the focus of our attention this morning. And the answer is that the Spirit helps us and prays for us and then that God purpose, God's purpose guarantees that everything that happens to us is designed for our good. As Christians, we can go on enduring suffering while at the same time having hope because we know that we are not left alone. We have the Spirit and because God is accomplishing good through us. Let me read our text for us beginning with verse 26. This is the Word of God. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And He who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because He intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom He predestined, He also called. And these whom He called, He also justified. And these whom He justified, He also glorified. The Holy Spirit wants us to know this morning that God works for the good of believers all the way until the end. God works for the good of believers all the way until the end. And we see this in two ways. First, we can patiently endure sin and suffering because the Spirit helps us. Verses 26 and 27. We can patiently endure sin and suffering because the Spirit helps us. And then secondly, we can patiently endure sin and suffering because God is working everything for our good. So first, we can endure sin and suffering because the Spirit helps us. In the previous passage, verses 18 to 25, we saw that despite our indwelling sin and ongoing suffering, we can wait in patience and in hope 
for the final redemption of our bodies. Remember, we and creation with us groans for that time when we will be finally transformed, when our bodies are uh, glorified. And how can we wait in patience and hope until that time comes? And the answer comes here in verse 26. It is that the Spirit helps us and intercedes for us. First, the Spirit helps us. In the same way, the Spirit also helps in our weakness. So, we saw last time that that with creation, we suffer through this life. We groan through this life. We have, like creation, the pains of childbirth as we wait for that final joy that's to come. After Jesus' ascension, the Spirit was not taken up with Him. No, He was left with us. And this verse tells us that His primary responsibility is during this time of our life is to cause us to be able to wait patiently until that final transformation to help us. So do you have a weakness? Do you have a burden that you are bearing? Is there a sin that is plaguing you? Well, the Scriptures are clear that that you were not made to bear those burdens alone. The Spirit lives in the lives of believers to help them in their weakness. And why does He help us? Look at the answer in the next line of verse 26. Why does the Spirit help us? For, see how it's connected to the previous line? We do not know how to pray as we should. So why does the Spirit help us? Because we don't know how to help ourselves sometimes, right? We, unlike the Spirit, don't always know God's will for us. But, but did you ever consider that you have the Spirit of God living in you who knows precisely what the will of God is for you? So that when you are in times of weakness and you don't know how to pray, the Holy Spirit knows how to pray. You see, we don't fully comprehend God's will and so we need the Holy Spirit to help us. And the reason I know that this is talking about the Spirit knowing God's will is because of verse 27. Notice, and he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he, that is the Spirit, intercedes for the saints according to what? According to the will of God. So while we don't know fully how to pray, verse 26, the Spirit does. Why? Because he prays, he intercedes according to the will of God on our behalf. And so what that means for us is that the Spirit's intercession is effective. He makes for us this this great mediator between us and God. We don't fully know God's will. He fully knows God's will. And further, the reason that He makes such a good uh, mediator for us is that He both knows God's mind. What is God's will for us, right? What does God want us to do? What's God's desire for us? He knows what's in God's mind because He is God. And He knows what's in our mind, doesn't He? Look at verse 26. For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit Himself intercedes with groanings too deep for words. You see, He knows what's in the mind of God and He knows what's in the mind of us. That is, He knows our weaknesses. And so, we can be sure that the Spirit's intercession for us is effective so that when we come to times where we don't know what to say, we don't know how to pray, the Spirit intercedes for us, knowing what God wants for us and knowing what we want, what what our trouble is. 
Now, this doesn't mean that we resign ourselves to, you know, we're not going to pursue God's will anymore. We don't need to know it. The Spirit's here. He's going to do it. That's not what the text is calling us to do. It's simply an encouragement for us that, that when you feel inadequate, or when you don't feel inadequate, and you are, the Spirit's there to help you. He's there to guide you along and actually to speak on your behalf to God and say, here's what this person needs. So our weakness includes, I think, our inadequacy in prayer. And so that's when the Spirit comes to our rescue. That At the end of verse 26, He intercedes with groanings too deep for words. Did you notice that, that it is God Himself who is helping us? It is the Spirit who helps us. Wouldn't it be okay of God for him to send a servant of his, you know, maybe an angel or an Old Testament saint to help in our weakness. He says, no, I'm going to come myself and I'm going to live among them. I'm going to live in them. And I'm going to be the one who speaks to the Father. So it is the Spirit who, himself who comes and he intercedes for us and he communicates with God in unspoken terms. So let me encourage you to continually steadfastly in your prayers, uh, don't give up. Don't give up speaking to God because the Holy Spirit is on your side. You may think at times that God will not answer your prayers until you know they are perfectly and theologically correct or until you're able to clearly express exactly what's on your, mu- your mind. Excuse me. You know, I can't really pray to God until I know how to pray. I can't really pray until I, I learn some more. But here's the encouragement for every single one of us this morning. The Holy Spirit knows what you want. And He knows what you need. And more importantly, He knows what the Father wants for you. And so He takes your prayers and aligns them with the Father's desires. Have you ever been around a toddler and they were trying to say what they wanted, but you just couldn't understand them? Because their their ability to speak in clear terms was not as developed as it could be. They're still young. And so they're saying some babbling kind of words and you're just looking at them. And then you look up to their mom or dad and and they're able to know exactly what they're saying, don't they? Because they know that child. They know their their grunts and groans and and they know what they're asking for. They can translate for for you what the child wants. Friends, there is never a time as a Christian when you cannot pray. Don't buy into the lie that you have to be, before you can pray well, you have to be a gifted speaker or a seminary graduate because the Spirit will help you in your weakness. He will say to God what He knows you want. He will cause God to hear what He knows you want and what you need. He will align your desires or your utterings with what God wants. Okay, so let's take that example of the toddler and move it a few years forward to maybe kindergarten age. And the child comes to you, you're not the parent, but comes to you and says, I'm hungry. I want to eat some candy. I am so hungry. I I need something. I need candy. Give me candy. Now, since the child came to you, you you know you you wouldn't be wise to just give them candy, what they want. So you go to the child's father and you pass on the message. And what would you say to the child's father? Wouldn't you say something like, you know, your child is really hungry and is wanting to eat now. You leave out the candy part, don't you? In other words, you change that request because you know both what the child wants, 
to be filled. And you know what the father wants? Which is for the child to eat something that's good for him. And that's exactly how it works with the Holy Spirit. We say these things that we think we want, and the Holy Spirit says, I know what you really want, and I know what God really wants for you, and I'm going to give that to the Father. What about this example? Suppose you're baby, babysitting for some young kids, and, and you're supposed to take them to church, but you got up late, and so there's no milk for cereal. And, and then on top of that, they didn't get to watch their favorite cartoon. It was snowing outside. They couldn't get their fingers in their gloves properly. One of the other kids touched them on the way. And so they're crying. And you get there, and the parents are meeting you there. And you ask the child, what do you want? And you go through a list. And you don't know what they want. They don't, they don't want to go to the bathroom. They don't, they're not hungry. They're not tired. They don't know what they want. But then dad and mom show up. And you know, dad and mom somehow have a way of knowing exactly what the child wants and what the child needs. And they come to meet the need. And that is similar to what it's like with the Spirit when we don't know what to pray for. Or when we pray for something that actually would be harmful for us. Do you know what the Spirit knows? He both knows our longings, our groanings, and He knows what the Father wants for us. And so you can be sure that your prayers will be answered properly. Think of this great privilege that you have because you're adopted as God's child. You have the Father, the one who, who, who is working for your behalf. That's what we'll look at here in just a minute. But, but you have the, the Son who is in heaven in the very throne room of God interceding for you. That's what Hebrews tells us. His name is Jesus. And He's there at the throne room of God saying, hey, we, we take care of this person. We help them. But not only do you have one in the very throne room of God, but you have one in your own heart who knows your weakness and knows what you need and pleads with the Father on your behalf. So here it is, friends. We can overcome indwelling sin. We can be patient and endure all the way till the end despite the indwelling sin and the ongoing suffering because, number one, the Spirit is helping us. And the second reason that we can patiently endure sin and suffering is because God is working everything for our good. Because we know that fact. Because God, it's not just that God is working for our good, but we know that. Verses 28-30. through 30, We can patiently endure sin and suffering because God is working everything for our good. Now, in order to see God's sovereignty here, we need to see what God's sovereignty is seeking to accomplish and then how long that it lasts. So first, God sovereignly rules in the lives of believers for their good. God sovereignly rules in the lives of believers for their good. Verses 28 and 29. Notice the first word of verse 28 is the word and. It shows us that it's connected to what Paul had been saying before. How can we endure in the face of sin and suffering? Well, the Spirit helps us and we can also endure because we know this fact about God's sovereign rule. We know that God rules. Now notice in the text, that in some, of, some translations, it says God causes all things to work together for good. Other translations have all things work together for good. So which one is correct? Well, to be honest, I'm not sure. 
because there, are, there is one early manuscript that has all things work together for good. But some of the other early manuscripts have God causes all things. So is it God that causes all things? Or is it just a passive, all things work together? And to be honest, I don't know, but, but really it doesn't matter, does it? Because even if it is, all things work together for good, we would say, by whom? Is it random chance that all things work together for good? No, it's God who works all things together for good. It's God who causes it to happen. So either of these translations I think are good ones, um, but, but God is ultimately the one who sovereignly rules. When I say sovereignly rules, when I say God's sovereignty, I mean that He has general control over all things. God has general control over all things. That He is the divine author or the universal conductor, if you think of it like an orchestra. If you think of the entire universe like an orchestra, God conducts. He, he makes sure that each part plays its sound. Some of those sounds on their own, have you ever heard individual uh, uh, individual instruments being played that's supposed to be part of a bigger orchestra doesn't sound right. Particularly if they don't have the melody, right? There's some weird sounds in there, long notes being held out, and maybe even some minor keys and so on. But but when played in the larger orchestra, it works. And that's how God works as well. He is the universal conductor. So we need to ask a few questions about God's sovereignty. How much of creation does God control? Look at the text. Because again, I, I want you to see this from what God says, not from what I think. How much of creation does God control? We know that God causes some things, all things, right? He works out everything. Ephesians 1 says it this way, verse 11 God works out everything after the counsel of His will. Not some things after the counsel of His will, everything after the counsel of His will. So that means that God's sovereignty is over all things. And we see this throughout the Scriptures. From the greatest acts of men, right? Even wicked men. The controlling of Pharaoh. We'll see that in chapter 9 of Romans. To the smallest acts of men. Or seemingly most random acts, right? The casting of lots is controlled by the Lord, Proverbs says. Or, or we could say it this way, the, the result of the rolled dice or the, the winner of the Lions game is going to be determined. By God. Okay? God determines all that. From the largest things like the universe, the physical world, the hearts of kings, right? The, 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 the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord and He turns it whatever way He wishes. Proverbs 21. 1. The birth and career of every human. Man's success and failure. The trivial things in life. Right? How many hairs you have on your head? God knows. Answers to prayer. God causes all those things to work together for good. The punishment of the wicked. All, all those things are controlled by God. There, there, that is, there is nothing, nothing outside of the control of God. So, how much of creation does God control all things? And what does God direct all things in the universe to do? So, if God has control over all things, what is He using the control of all those things to do? Notice in verse 28. God causes all things, and here's what He causes to do, to work together for good for those who love God. So we could just say it this way, to work for the good of believers. Now just like the child who was crying and didn't know why, God knows what is best for us, and so He, better than we, can determine what's best for our circumstances. 
And so good here we need to recognize in verse 28 has to include something other than earthly comforts. Because do you know any Christians? Do you know any believers from the Bible who have experienced loss? Do you know any believers who have suffered in the Bible? Someone who lost family or health or respect. And yet, at the same time, we still know about them that God was working for them. That He was working for their good. Do you know of any? We know of Job, don't we? God was doing something great in Job despite his loss. God was doing something great in Joseph despite his loss. God was doing something great in Paul and in the people from Hebrews 11. They all died without receiving the promise. So we have to ask, what is this good, right? Because if these people are all experiencing loss, read the end of Hebrews 11, you want to see some of that loss. Some of them were killed. Some of them had their kids taken from them. Some of them experienced great loss, and yet this promise was for them, wasn't it? God causes all things to work together for good, but that's not good. Loss is not good, is it? And that's why we have to define good as not earthly comforts. That could be part of it. But it cannot be confined to our earthly comforts because all of our earthly comforts could still be taken away from us and this promise would still be true for you. That God is working out everything for good. So what is this good? Well, I think we need to think about good in, term, in terms of eternal perspective. And, 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 and really, in this context, it seems to point to final glorification. Notice verse 29. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. Our good, the good that God's causing in you, the good that God's using all things to work together for you, is the good that's good eternally. That that will ultimately lead us to final glorification. That's how this text ends in verse 30 that it will lead us to glorification. So our good primarily is defined as whatever it takes to bring you to sanctification. You see, God doesn't choose a person to salvation and then say, you know what, I hope they make it. No, He says, I choose you to salvation, I call you, you come to faith, and then I give you the means to make it to the end. And you know how I do that? I use everything in the universe so that it works out for your good, your sanctification. He ensures that that you will make it to the end. He ensures that, that you will be preserved and that you will grow fruit by means of the Spirit helping you and praying for you and leading you. He ensures, that is, God ensures that, that we will ultimately be glorified. Friends, this is how we know God loves us is that He is using everything and controlling all things for the sake of your good so that you would have an eternity with Him. And this is one of the great foundations for our confidence in our salvation. How we can know that we really know Him. That God is working for our sanctification. He's working for our final glorification. 
Now, sometimes we just read this verse, just the first part of it. Maybe broader Christendom does this, but God causes all things to work together for good and stop there. But do you notice the next two phrases? And I think they're parallel. first one is, to those who love God and to those who are called according to His purpose. So, so who is it that God works for? Who is it that God works out everything for their good? It's only those who love God and who are called according to His purpose. Now, there's an implication. There are two clarifications we need to make. First, the implication is that God does not work for the good of those who don't love Him and who are not called according to His purpose. This is not their promise. Because it's not going to turn out all right in the end, is it? For those who don't love God and those who aren't called according to His purpose. It's not a promise for the unbelieving. And it's not a promise for you only when you're loving God. Look at the text again. To those who love God. Now, we might look at that and say, you know, I'm not loving God right now. At this time, I'm kind of opposed to God. I'm backsliding a little bit. And so He must not be working out for my good. He must be punishing me. But you know, the text is not saying that. He's not saying God is working out everything for my good only when I love God. The idea of loving God here is a settled status. Just look at the next phrase. Notice, to those who are called according to His purpose. Right? It's not a constant calling. It's a one-time effectual call. Something that God says, you follow me, and you do. It's one time settled, just like your, your love for God. That's what he's talking about. He's not saying when you love God, then God's working for your purpose. No. Because you love God, because you are a lover of God, a believer, everything in your life, everything in your life is being done for your good, for your sanctification. And what does God desire for you? Verse 29. God's purpose, notice, well, let's skip back to verse 28 because it says God calls, causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and those who are called according to His purpose. So what is His purpose? What is this good that He wants to bring about in us? And this is where we come to verse 29. And it is that Christ is working for your transformation, your sanctification, your growth in godliness. Christian, you can be sure that God is working for you because He has been doing so since the creation of the world. Since before the creation of the world, He has been working for your good. And He will not stop until you reach your final destination of complete transformation, uh, having a completely glorified body. Notice verse 29. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. This is why I say, even before creation, God was working for your good if you're a Christian. And He's working so that you would be conformed to the image of Christ. And this is talking about the final transformation that takes place, I think. I think it's talking about glorification here. where, Where we will finally be fully metamorphosized. Where we will be finally changed where the process is complete, we will have a resurrected body. And in doing so, we will make Christ the firstborn, right? Right now, there is only one who has a glorified body. Do you realize that? There's, there have been others who have been raised from the dead, but, but not to have a glorified body, right? Lazarus raised from the dead, but only to die again. So he still needs a glorified body. Only Christ has a glorified body. So at this point, Christ, 
isn't technically the firstborn among the dead. He will be when we are all raised from the dead. In the most technical sense, we will be making Him to be the firstborn among the glorified bodies. Everyone whom God has chosen to salvation will be conformed into the image of His Son. That's what verse 29 tells us. Everyone whom God has chosen to salvation. Notice the word there, foreknew. There's much debate over this word, foreknew. Does it mean that God chose us to salvation? Or does it mean that in eternity past, He looked down the corridors of time of time to see if we would believe or not? And I believe that, that this is God's choice of believers. His uncoerced, sovereign choice based on His own free will. God chose to save believers to save individuals. And I think that for two reasons. First, because of the grammar of verse 29. Notice that first line. For those whom He foreknew, He predestined. Notice that it doesn't say that He foreknew something. right? It doesn't say that He foreknew that they would come to faith. So it's, I don't think He's saying, I'm looking down the corridors of time, seeing if they will believe, and if they do, then, then, I'll, then I'll accept that. And I'll, I'll, I'll be the one who foreknows that. Instead, this word is simply there without an object for those whom He foreknew. And in that way, I think it's more like the Old Testament word of know. The word know in the Old Testament has the idea of, of choice or setting an affection on someone, having an intimate relation with them, moving to action on their behalf. We'll see this more when we come to chapter 9. In verses 15 through 18, God didn't choose Jacob over Esau because of something that Jacob had done, right? He simply cho- chose him before he had done anything good or bad, Romans 9 says. He simply chose Jacob over Esau out of his own free choice. Now, you might be thinking, you know, I don't believe in God's sovereign election. I believe that everyone has a free choice. Well, let me ask you a few questions. Take. Take, take a sibling or a cousin of yours who is an unbeliever. Okay, just think of that person right now. Do you have that person in mind? What's the difference between you, a believer, and your unbelieving family member? You say, well, I, didn't, I believed and she didn't. Okay, well, let me, let me ask you this question. Why did you believe and she didn't? And you say, well, you know, I responded to the news of the Gospel particularly if it's someone else who's heard the news and and didn't respond. And I would say, well, why did you respond? And you might say, well, because I was sensitive to what I was hearing. And you know what I'm going to ask? Why were you sensitive? And they weren't. And you might say, well, because I was searching for God. And I would say, well, why were you searching for God? And and, And then I would say, well, and you would say, because I knew I was lost. And I would say, well, why, would, why did you know that you were lost? See, and I could just keep going on and on, asking you questions. Why did you and not her? And so let me ask you this question. Do you think really, deep down inside of you, that you somehow are better than another person? That the reason you believed was because something in you? Or was it that God gave you the ears? to hear 
that He chose you. And He said, My sheep will know My voice. They will hear Me. And they will follow Me. So that when the Master calls out, Come and follow Me, she doesn't respond because she's not in the fold. And I respond only on the basis of God's grace. That He chose me. I had nothing to do with it. J.I. Packer in his book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, argues that all Christians believe in God's sovereignty and salvation. And he gives two proofs. He says, here's how I know you believe in the sovereignty of God and salvation. Number one, you thanked God for your salvation. And why would you thank God? The reason that you thank God is because you knew that God was responsible for it, right? And the second reason I know, Packer says, that you believe in God's sovereignty and salvation is because... You pray for others to be saved. And why do you pray for others? You pray for others because you know that you can't do the saving. And so he says this, we may have disagreements on our feet, but we all agree on our knees. We thank God for our salvation and we pray for others. Well, God's purpose begins with a sovereign choice. But then it moves to the confirmation of that choice in eternity past. That's called predestination here, verse 29. For those whom He foreknew... That's the sovereign choice. He predestined. That's the confirmation of that sovereign choice. And that is that God sovereignly rules in the lives of believers. He's the one who makes the choice. And do you notice how long He does that in verse 30? He does it all the way till the end. So He does it from eternity past all the way until the time when you're glorified. Notice verse 30, "...and these whom He predestined, He also called. And these whom He called, He also justified. And these whom He justified, He also glorified." So we have this chain that continues. From eternity past, God chose you and He's making sure that you will be conformed to the image of His Son until the day when glorification, it happens. So this chain is real. This is what God does to bring someone to final transformation, final glorification. That those whom He has chosen, He will call. And this is an effective call. That is, they will respond. And those whom He called, He will justify Right? That is, those whom He called, they will respond in saving faith. And the result will be that God declares them to be righteous. And all those whom He justified, notice the, the tense of the verb there. At the end of verse 30, He also glorified. Notice it's past tense. As if it already happened. Now, it hasn't happened. None of you are glorified. I'm not glorified. Okay, be, Just hang around any one of us for a while and you know that. But, but glorified is written in the past tense to show that it's as if it's already happened. In other words, God's so sure that it will happen in you, Christian, that He can speak about it in the past tense. That all who are chosen will be glorified. They, it's as if they're already glorified. You know, God doesn't live in time and space like us, right? He's infinite. And so for Him, it's, it's already done in His mind. For us, it's, it's still coming but it's guaranteed by God's sovereign power. This, Christian friends, is why we love the Gospel. This passage right here. Because it's God who chose us. It's God who calls us. It's God who declares us to be righteous, justifies us. It's God who sanctifies us, who conforms us to the image of His Son. It's God who keeps us. It's God who sends His Spirit to be our helper. It's God who sends the Spirit to intercede for us. It's God who grants us final transformation so that we can say about our salvation, I boast in nothing except the cross 
of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Because, you know, it was not by works of righteousness which I have done. But it is according to His mercy that He saved me. It was not of any of my works or because I was better than my sister. So that no one could boast. This is the Gospel. That my salvation is all of God. Hallelujah! All I have is Christ. And friends, if you're trying to perform before God in order to earn His favor, you don't understand the Gospel. You don't understand that salvation was all of God. It was a free gift of grace by a loving God who for some reason chose to pour out His mercy on us while we were enemies. It was at that time that Christ died for us. So now we can shout from the mountaintops, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And we can patiently wait our final transformation for our final transformation. Even though we are plagued by indwelling sin and ongoing suffering because you know why? We know that the Spirit is helping us in our weakness and because we know that God is working every single thing in this universe They're all at His disposal and He is using them to bring about spiritual good in our lives. And so for those reasons, we can say, yes, I can can continue on. I can go on through the suffering because I know that God's ultimately using it for my good. Let's pray. Father, Your sovereignty spans over the entire universe. There's nothing outside of Your control. And Your sovereignty spans both the evil things of the world and the good. You certainly don't cause them. But none of those things that happen, even the worst acts of men, are not a surprise to You. They're not, they really shouldn't be news to us. Because when we think about the most tragic thing that's ever taken place, we know that it was planned by You. And that is the death of Your Son on the cross. And so, Lord, we know that even the lesser evils than those can be controlled by You, just like You controlled the events during the time of Joseph to bring about good. And although he didn't see what was going on, and and maybe the first time we read that story, we didn't see what was going on, we see at the end that, that You used Joseph to save the lives of many. And so, Lord, we don't know how all of the terrible things in life play into the big picture but we know that there's nothing outside of Your control. And we know that Your sovereignty spans from eternity past to eternity future. And Lord, the greatest truth that we can say about what we've looked at this morning is that You, God, are on our side. And if You, Father, are for us, then who can be against us? What are we supposed to say about these things? Who can bring a charge against us Who can condemn us? It is You who justifies. It is You who glorify. And so, Lord, we count on Your good and sovereign control in our lives. And, Lord, we want to thank You for the Spirit that You've left with us who helps us in our weakness. Lord, help us to be complicit with His leading. Help us to follow Him in truth and in obedience. We pray that You would use the truth of Your Word this morning to... Encourage us and strengthen us in our faith. We pray for your help in Jesus' name. Amen.